Hello, welcome to Late to It. I'm Naomi Frisby. I'm Kirsty Dill. And this is a podcast about reading books at the right time. Series four, Kirsty. We're back. We've had a proper break this time. We have, but it's only been a year. So we did three series in a year. We're very uh, prolific. <laughs> very prolific. And we read a lot of books and we like to talk about them. But it's it's a it's a pleasure to be back. It's been nice. I, I think I've enjoyed the break, but also I'm glad to be doing this again. Yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting about what we've been reading. Some good books coming up this series as well. But a trailer for the rest of the series. We have some good books coming up. <laughs> some of which we haven't read yet. So, you know, we might have to rescind on that. At some <laughs> <laughs> Disclaimer. Hopefully some of them are good. <laughs> what have you been doing over the break? Not reading. <laughs> No, I have read a bit. Um, what have I been doing? It was Christmas. Yeah. I, well, I was ill. At, I was non-COVID ill at Christmas, but I was ill. Um, what have I been doing? You know what, Kirsty? I don't actually know. Surviving. It's all any of us can do. <laughs> what have you been doing? Uh, I got COVID ill. Mm. Not over Christmas, but um, very, very nearly over my fortieth birthday, which it would have been. Truly awful. I was just about out of bed for my 40th. Um, I turned 40. Yay! Well, I am in now, as I'm told, is the, my best decade. Um, I've everyone I've spoken to who's already in their 40s has been like, honestly, this is the time of your life. It's going to be absolutely amazing. Your 40s are fantastic. And I was saying this. I was actually at a work do, and I was saying this to a group of people at the table um, who'd asked me how my birthday was. And one guy who I'm not going to name, who was in his 40s, just went, I wish I was in my 30s. I was like, okay, everyone apart from you <laughs> said. I wonder if this is a gender thing, because I'm 44, so I had my birthday. Be- well, yeah, so before the end, of, before we'd recorded the end of the last series, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but 40s, is, 40s has been loads better as a woman. So I think it's just... Everybody can fuck off. I'm going to do what I like. <laughs> so ready. I'm so ready for that sort of energy in my life. I'm really looking forward to it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's what I've been doing, really. I've just been... Um, I have read a bit as well. I've read some very good books. Um, but, uh, yeah. And work. I've been working. It's not that interesting for a podcast. You know, I've some, yeah, I've done some work. I don't talk about it much. <laughs> Oh, I tell you what, what did happen. Yeah, I was going to say about. I got a grant from Sheffield Writers Development Fund. That's very, nice. very, very exciting. Congratulations! Thank you. I am excited. So I've got some money out of the Tories, which is hey. um, although I should say that Dan Jarvis, who's the Labour Mayor of South Yorkshire, um, yeah, he uh, split the money up into different pots. So, yes, I've got some money to help me finish my book. Hurrah! 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 <laughs> that is good news indeed. Yes, very excited about getting that done. Good. And then we'll have something else to read, because obviously I'll have to make you read it. But <laughs> until then, we'll read other people's books. <laughs> what have you been reading, Kirsty? Well, I was going to say, before I tell you what I've been reading, don't do what um, uh, a former colleague of mine was in a book group. And um, one week at the book group, it was this particular woman's chance, like turn to choose what they were doing. And she wanted them all to read her unpublished novel. Oh, no. No, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> One of my no, no. Um, friends 
I don't know if I've mentioned this on on the podcast before, but I um, live just down the road from a really nice pub. When I mean just down the road, I mean it's literally two minutes from my house. Um, and I have a really nice group of friends <laughs> who I hang out with in the pub. Um, and one of them said to me the other day that he'd bought the book of Sheffield, which is the short story collection about Sheffield that has got my um, first published in a book piece of writing in it. And I was like, if you don't like it, we will just never mention it again. <laughs> I haven't heard that. I don't know you heard it. It's all good. <laughs> um, well, what I have been reading this week or very recently that I wanted to talk about is Violets by Alex Hyde, which was published in February by Granter. Now, I preface this by going, Naomi doesn't like books that are set in World War II. Mm. Um, this is a book set in World War II. <laughs> so I'm afraid Naomi's going to have to get over her... Um, uh, I've got I've forgotten the word. This is how long it is since I've been speaking out loud. Her aversion to World War II fiction because this is one of the best books I have read in quite a long time, and an early bid uh, from one of my books of the year. And we're only in early March. I'm calling it. It's going to be in my list. Um, it is about two women called Violet. The Violets of the title. Uh, who are it's in this it's towards the end so they're not the whole book is in world war ii but it is set in the sort of the last year of a world war ii um one violet is in england at the opening of the novel uh she's just suffered an ectopic pregnancy and i will say massive content warning for anyone who is um doesn't want to read about uh, sort of ectopic pregnancy or miscarriage or child loss, um, birth, pregnancy, infertility, um, all that sort of stuff. Um, it is quite a brilliant book, but there are some um, pretty uh, harrowing scenes in it. So I will give that content warning up front. Um, Violet One, uh, as I say, has just um, had this ectopic pregnancy. Uh, because it has been sort of quite a serious one. She was actually pregnant with twins. Um, she has had to have a full hysterectomy. So she is now unable to have children. Her husband, she's 23. Um, her husband is just while she's, she's not even out of the hospital and her husband is sent off uh, to Burma to fight. So there's her storyline about the fact that she's having to kind of reconcile herself you know she desperately wanted children they both did um everyone around her is having children you know she's got sisters and friends who are pregnant um and also having to do this without her husband who you know she loves very deeply and is now on the other side of the world and you know there's contact is obviously difficult at the same time you have another violet who is in wales who is uh single and pregnant by a passing Polish soldier who's gone on his merry way and her way of dealing with it before the kind of small town that she's in starts gossiping because she can really she realizes that her mum's starting to clock that something's amiss <laughs> um she signs up and goes to work for the army basically in the kind of doing paperwork, office work, but gets stationed out in Italy and is concealing her pregnancy. Um, and as the novel goes on, um, these stories become intertwined and it is just beautifully written. There are sections that essentially 
our poetry is set out like poetry that read like poetry it's the interior lives of these two women who are dealing with some incredibly big harrowing things um the time period i think works in its favor because obviously being unmarried and pregnant or going through that sort of catastrophic pregnancy lost in those times I mean it's not to say that it's easy now of course it isn't but in that time period obviously had its own set of difficulties um and actually the war works quite well as as part of the narrative in that it's the reason for the for the well, for both the fathers to be absent um and for uh the Welsh Violet to be um what she does to conceal her pregnancy so the war does have a function although it's not and we'll come to talk about why you don't like world war ii but it's not a kind of glorification glory days of the war you know kind of book but it, it does it, it works within this novel um it's just beautifully written I, I just think it was absolutely stunning um but with all those content warnings attached it does sound really interesting and i trust your judgment obviously <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah my, my problem with the war is that we're obsessed it's our national narrative and it's time to get over it and get past it and um, that's my problem with it but um i'll take your word that it works as part of the part I'm of the it does <laughs> it's all these people i i i there are exceptions obviously kate atkinson can write anything she likes that's set in <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's people are obsessed with writing about it. And I'm like, yeah. stop, stop. <laughs> we don't need yeah, I don't know what it is. I don't know whether it's it's that there's this sort of romantic notion of mm. hardship under rationing and you know, which is not a romantic thing at all. You know, my, my mum was alive, my mum um was born in 1940 and so grew up uh with rationing in her early years and you know. I remember telling me horrific stories. It wasn't, it wasn't a romantic thing. Um, but yeah, there is something about that time period that people are kind of obsessed with. Yeah, that's our national narrative, isn't it? That we were so yeah. under and, you know, stood on our own as an island and did all these amazing things. And you're just like, yeah, nobody supported us in that. <laughs> no, no, no help at all. There definitely wasn't any allies. No. no. None. <laughs> Yeah. What about you? What have you been reading? Well, in a throwback to the beginning of last series, I have been reading Again Rachel by Marion Keys, which you asked me whether I would read the sequel when we talked about Rachel's holiday. So it arrived on publication day and I read it over the weekend. Um, I'd have read it faster, but I was hanging out at my boyfriend's house and literally every time he went out of the room, I was like reading another five pages <laughs> before he came back in. If I'd been at home on my own, I would have like stormed through it. Mm. Um, yes, I'm quite bereft that it's it's one of those. I just think she's brilliant at creating characters that like you feel like you know. And not only mm. is Rachel back, but all of her sisters are back and her mum and dad as well. Um, so yeah, so it's set oh years after what what are we on now, like 20 odd years after. Uh, Rachel's holiday. Rachel is back in Ireland. She is working at the cloisters. She's the head um, counsellor there. Luke has fucked off. <laughs> Luke, you have betrayed us. <laughs> so they got married. And then six years prior to when the book set, he just left. 
so that's all we know about it at the beginning um so she came back to to ireland obviously she's got this job she's got a new boyfriend he's called quinn or nick quinn living he's a bit of a mm, so he split up with his wife because he had an affair he's quite straightforward about that um at the beginning but still i'm like hmm um mm. they've not told each other that they love each other even though they've been together for two years um which keeps coming up as a bit of an issue <laughs> Mm-hmm. imagine um but like she seems all right it's like fairly steady he keeps trying to get her to move into his swanky house she's not that fussed she's got a really nice house and a dog um and her um niece is staying there um just because she wants to be like somewhere different that's not in her parents house um everything seems to be all right and then Luke's mum dies and he comes over to Ireland for the funeral and Rachel gets a text to say would she come to the funeral Mm. and she debates whether she should go or not because obviously she knows it's going to be difficult and she ends up um, going and then events conspire that of course (laughs) she ends up well actually when I say events conspire, so Luke's got a girlfriend, so he's still living in America. He's moved. Um, I'm trying to remember now where he's moved to. This is bad of me. It was not one of the things that I was focused on <laughs> when I was reading. Um, it's like Oklahoma or somewhere. It's not Oklahoma, but it's somewhere like that he's moved to. Um, I can't remember. I'm trying to flick through, but who knows? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so he's, he's living elsewhere and... Um, yeah, he's got his girlfriend. She's like younger and trendy and la la la. Um, and she basically uh, asks Rachel for help to get the morning after pill, which is a bit of a, mm, mm, mm-hmm. what are you up to? <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that happens. But obviously she's wanted to like check Rachel out. Um, and then they end up going for dinner. Um, Luke, Quinn, Rachel. Luke's girlfriend, who like she made that much of an impression on me that I can't tell you <laughs> because I didn't care. <laughs> I'm like, well, she's not going to be here very long, is she? <laughs> Let's carry on. Um, yes. Yeah, so um, yes. Yeah, so, th- so things keep conspiring to like bring them together. There's lots of chat about Luke's trousers um, and of how course. they are. <laughs> He's still looking hot as hell, obviously. Um, Yes. And mm, so the best, I think, so it sort of runs in parallel that he's in the background and we get to meet all Rachel's clients in the cloisters, which is great because they are a set of characters. <laughs> and I think that's one of Keys's like best things, I think, that she mm. creates these characters that you really feel like you know. So they're in there for all sorts of things, like the group that Rachel was with were so, you know, um, there's um alcoholism drugs addiction to prescription pills um somebody who's been oh gambling mm-hmm. um yeah and then you know lots of things come out about alcoholic parents sexual abuse all sorts i mean it's one of those you know it's an addiction narrative so so basically content note for like every type of addiction because it's all yeah. It's all in there, and what and those so those sort of two the two stories kind of run parallel. And of course, the thing that's keeping us hooked is why did why did Luke leave? What is he up to? Why is he being such a moody bastard again? Um, 
And and like we've met Rachel before, so we know she's never quite honest with herself or with us. So there's more to this story. Um, what I am going to say there, similar to what you just said, one of the things that frustrated me about this is there is no content note. Now, I knew sort of what, not, not entirely what was going on, but I'm one of those people who flicks the back when I pick it up. So I go and nosy at the acknowledgements and all that sort of stuff. And at the back, there is um, a page um, supporting SANS and giving you information about if you want to speak to someone. And if anybody's been affected by that, they will know that SANS is to do with uh, death of babies. And there is a stillbirth storyline in it. And I, and I was thinking about some of my friends that I know if they'd been reading that and not known, it would have been very triggering and quite devastating, I think, to read it. I mean, it's brilliantly mm -hmm. written, but to come across that as it's sort of revealed in the narrative would have been quite harrowing, I think. So I'm yeah. giving content you know, even if I, it always makes me think about when people then, you know, get pissed off because spoilers and whatever. And I'm just like, I think pe people who've got that issue with content notes haven't had the sort of trauma that triggers PTSD. If you've got PTSD, you know that, you know, there are some, some things you can't do anything about. You come across things and they trigger you regardless. And it's not something that you could have ever like accounted for it happening. But if, if there's a way that you can stop someone being in that position, you know, mm -hmm. out, like it's not going to stop people reading it. If you're in that mood where you want to be comforted and read somebody else's story, then absolutely it's done sensitively and really well, but you don't want to come across that by surprise if you don't have to. So. No, absolutely. I think it's it's about being it's it's about being informed, isn't it? It's about being able to make the decision whether you know you feel up to exposing yourself to that. You know, there are some people who will have experienced that that have no issues with reading about it in fiction. There are other people who will have, have experienced that who absolutely it's a no go area. And I just don't. I think being ambushed by something like that when you're not expecting it. Mm. Um, is not cool to be honest it's not it's not like something that you could argue oh well you get triggered by everything um you know stillbirth I think we can generally agree is a hugely traumatic thing <laughs> you know I think I think it's it's not unreasonable to want a heads up yeah, about that yeah. I mean with something like violets it, it says quite openly in the blurb on you know anything around the book that it is about miscarriage and and pregnancy and stuff like that so you know it's it's um it's it's more it's more apparent but I mean I haven't read a huge around around again Rachel um and I had no idea that that storyline was in it mm. I have to say I was not in particularly minded to read it anyway after not massively loving Rachel's holiday um but that is doesn't make me want to read it anymore I did with apologies to Marion Keys who I love you know in general in her own right but um, actually one of the things I wanted to ask you know we talked in the last series about Rachel's holiday and how some of it perhaps hasn't dated as well mm. as it might um particularly around fat phobia and also around the way that the counseling scenes the therapy scenes happened in the first book how did those uh work in this one there's no fat phobia. Rachel talks about how, yeah, Rachel talks quite a lot about how terrible she was. Good. And I mean, I'd said that I'd read some more Marion Keys recently and, and not, you know, there was nothing there. I think that's probably just, well, and I think added to that as well, one of the things I like about these is like, 
I've grown up with Rachel. There's a lots of fans, Will. Like, Rachel's, like, similar age to me, so it's quite yeah. nice that Keys is writing. I mean, she's in her 50s, and she's still writing about characters that are, like, age-appropriate for her. She's not writing about 20 or 30-year-olds, so that's, mm. bit, like, I, like, it's one of those, isn't it, where I feel like I've grown up with her and she's grown up as a writer and all that yeah. sort of thing. Um, and the counselling, Rachel is, like, there's some similarities between the way Rachel works and the woman who... Um, who was the lead counsellor when she was, or at least her counsellor when she was in the cloisters. But I think it's explained, because it's done from Rachel's perspective as the counsellor, we get to see why she's doing certain things and how it right. works and what she's... So she talks about, so she brings the family members in, and, you know, that was one of the things where I'm just like, this is horrific, getting them to come in, and because there was the domestic violence stuff, wasn't there, which... Yeah. Yeah. There, there is one with there is a bit with one like dodgy husband but it's he sort of forces his way into the group it's not right. where she's she's trying not to bring him in she wants to bring the daughter in without him but he's quite wealthy and he's yeah and he's clearly interfering for a reason and um, yeah so because it's done from Rachel's perspective and she's talking about she's she's really good at her job and she talks about why and how she does it and I think because she's been through that she gives a different perspective from the other side about why she's trying to like I mean it feels like the wrong word to use but why she's trying to break these people how she's trying to get through that point where they address the fact that they're an addict and how she does that and there's some really nice scenes actually so there's a there's a woman in there who's in for um gambling as basically like spending a fortune on scratch cards and things like that and um has has done some real damage to her kids to be honest um through it and she when it comes out when they finally get to what what's causing this why she she's doing what she's doing it's quite horrific what's happened to her and the way that so Rachel talks through how she's realized that's what it is that's causing mm. it and she's very it's very clear afterwards like the support that she puts in place what will happen like it's all sort of detailed as to and what she does afterwards so if it's just before the weekend what's you know that there's extra um not security as such but they're given extra sort of care made mm. sure that they're watched over sessions with other people all that sort of stuff like what's the sort of the aftercare when she's on a, a day off or a weekend or whatever so mm. yeah yeah I didn't there wasn't a point where I just thought that's horrendous <laughs> Good. I'm yeah. relieved to hear that. Yeah. Um, shall we talk about the books for this week? Yes, let's. We've got a couple. Of, I think we're starting on quite a high in we terms are. of the quality That's of the book. I'm said... worried that we're peaking too early. That's why I said we need to be a little bit careful. <laughs> How many great books we're doing? <laughs> it's all downhill from here. Yes. Um, so the two books, the two excellent books that we're talking about this week um, are Homegoing by Yagasi which was published in 2016 by Penguin. And then another 2016 novel, although it didn't come out in the English translation until 2018, uh, Disoriental by Nagar Javadi, which is translated from the French by Tina Kova, published by Europa. Um, I mean, we do always try and pair books up so that we've got at least some sort of bed of similarity to work from but I have to say a particularly fine job this week there is so much that connects these books I mean we're going to start with Homegoing but I think it's going to be one of those ones we'll end up talking about both as we go so forgive us if we dot about a bit um 
Shall I just launch? Shall I just yeah, shall I just keep it. talking? Yeah, why not? Hurrah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can tell I haven't spoken to people for a while. <laughs> and another thing. Um, so my sort of yardstick for books that came out in 2016 was was I aware of them because 2016 I was on maternity leave so I was basically removed from the world I was not paying attention particularly to which books were coming out from who um so if I heard about it it means it cut through the white noise app um so I was aware of Homegoing this is one of the books that I do remember coming out and wanted to read and never got around to um it got lots of attention. It um, has been reviewed. I mean, I'm looking at my paperback copy and there are five pages of review quotes at the beginning from everything from the New York Times to Roxanne Gay to the Grazia to the pool, RIP, um, big issue, glamour, like everyone, everything. Am I not in there? I reviewed it on my blog. <laughs> Am I, mean, I not I, up there with the New York Times? <laughs> I hate to break it to you, Naomi. I, I didn't want to do this on a podcast, but you haven't made the cut. I'm so oh, sorry. Dear. Meanwhile, BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed loved it. Um, but it didn't, and it's a Sunday Times bestseller, it says here on my paperback, Sunday Times bestseller. Um, but it didn't win any prizes, which is a, a travesty. I'm, I'm furious, like, six years too late. Um, it absolutely should have won all of the things. Um, it is about uh, two sisters. Well, it starts with two sisters, Effia and Essie, uh, who are in Africa, in, in what is now Ghana, what was for a long time called the Gold Coast. Um, and they are sisters who end up with very different paths one is sold into slavery one marries a slave trader a white slave trader and so this triggers this sort of two parallel lines of gener two generational lines one of which um is is mostly nearly all um in africa in gold coast slash ghana and the other in America, where they've um, obviously after uh, has been trans, you know transported over and, and into the slave trade, and then, then the generation on from there. Um, it's in that sense, I think, quite a simple structure. In that it's it's linear. It takes kind of turnabout in terms of which thread you're following. There's a very um, simple and obvious family tree in the front of the book, so you can see who is the child of who um but there's so much there's just so much in it there's so much in it about generational about generational trauma about um you know complicity which we'll talk about about the way that you know these these barbaric things that happen still have echoes that follow down the generations you know hundreds of years hence um but why don't we start by going you reviewed it in 2016 as we know <laughs> Um, tell me your thoughts. Do you know what? I, I can't remember what it was that we read last time and I said I felt, oh, it was Book of Memory. So right at the end of last series, we read the Book of Memory and I said I felt quite differently or I'd picked up on lots of things. And this time I felt, not that I'd picked up on lots of different things. I mean, I loved this. When, this is one of the reasons that I said that you needed to read it <laughs> because 
Especially because if I remember rightly, your guy Asim was about 21. If like she was early 20s when it was That's published. horrific. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. How dare. <laughs> um, rude. And the fact that it's structured, so one of the things that like fascinates me, maybe this is like a, a coming from a writer sort of point of view more than anything, but this the, it's the echoes in the structure. So mm. I know I've said before on this that I've got a problem with like little family. Tra- I know people like them because then I have to check and I'm like, no, if you have to check, there's a problem. And one of the things I like with this is that it's really clear and not in a like really obvious, oh, this is this person, but the links are there like fairly early on so you can work out who's who um, in terms of the characters. But also it's got all these little echoes. So down the side who remain in Africa, Ghana, Gold Coast, um, there's, the, there's the fire imagery. There's also um, a broom that comes back. Um, that mm. also happens in the American side as well. There's, there's a lot of cleaning goes on in this book. <laughs> Um, but all sorts of different echoes and where the lines start so one of the things that I really loved this time was when the um this the side that are in America once um the war happens slavery is over I'm going to put that I'm I'm doing inverted commas like a wanker (laughs) because there's a really brilliant speech about how it's never over because you know white people are still oppressing enslaving imprisoning um black men and women um but once so this storyline starts that sort of leads through um unions NACAP um what else is in it, it it's it's one where it, it shows that sort of solidarity and power building up and it leads to one of the characters on that side going to Stanford and it's really interesting to watch that sort of trajectory of, mm. of people coming together and working out how they were going to try and fight what was happening and how it like it's not just generational trauma it's that it's those generations building on you know that idea that you want better for your kids and how they get there and how it ends up with like so H you sort of and one of the things that I one of the reasons I love H I was saying to this this team before we started recording was because he's a miner and I grew up in mining country so um his story really interested me but he's the one where like the unionization begins and they start fighting for their pay um and it's really interesting to watch so then his son um I'm trying to remember I've got this right it is his son who then ends up addicted to heroin but then his son um again goes back to being an activist and so it's really and, and as he get actually his son he gets older and he gets off his well he doesn't get off it entirely he's on methadone for his entire life but he encourages his kid to be yeah. part of that and to become part of something bigger than himself so I, there's something really interesting in the way she does that and watching that happen and I mean the end ultimately is hopeful even though still there's there's all this you know there's still all the and I think it was part of me was thinking about it would be really interesting if if it was being written now and what would be added on in terms of Joy Floyd Black Lives Black Lives Matter movement but seeing that there is and and that you know I was reading um, there was an interview with Angela Davis in the Guardian at the weekend and she talks about how much hope like you've got to have hope and how much hope there is and I kind of like that she did end on that even though it's not the end yeah you know what I mean yeah no definitely I think it's also I think 
it becomes quite a radical act. You know, the, the hope and joy become radical acts. Um, there is a lot of horrific stuff in, in both sides of the narrative, obviously slavery, um, incarceration, um, H that you talk about is um, at first he's a minor, but on a chain gang, you know, the, the conditions are absolutely horrific. Um, meanwhile, on the sort of uh, Ghanaian uh, uh, Gold Coast storyline, you've got war, you've got villages turning on each other because who's working with the British and, you know, who's selling who into slavery. Um, you've got families pitted against each other. You've got, and actually one of my, um, one of my favourite uh, chapters, although favourite is um, sort of a weird word, one of the most striking chapters for me um, was Abina's chapter who becomes the mad woman in the village mm. and she is she is haunted by um i mean it's, it's trauma basically that, that has that causes her to um while in a kind of dissociative state to commit a fairly horrific but <laughs> crime yeah crime but that, that's not, almost not the right word she, she 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 commits this horrific act that has ramifications that go on down from generations after her. Um, and that is all, you know, that is absolutely all a direct legacy of, of the trauma that her family line has undergone. So to actually take all of that, there is so much pain um, and, and fear and, and just awful stuff happening to actually end on a hopeful, joyful note is sort of a radical act of itself and I kind of love that yeah we need to work backwards now aren't we <laughs> yeah we do sorry we're sort of <laughs> jumping around a bit I think the other thing that I noticed about it as well that I didn't perhaps pick up on as much the first time around was how much of it was about patriarchy mm. how much of it was about class because right at the beginning we start with these two women and it's how much they are like essentially enslaved by the patriarchy so one of them gets sold into um one of them one of them sold well not sold but one of them ends up marrying the white slaver um because her mum who it turns out at the end of the chapter is not her mum mm -hmm. <laughs> um that's not a massive spoiler because we're about 20 pages in at that point but um, <laughs> um yeah, so that so the woman that she thinks is her mum basically hates her, and so she plots um, to make sure that she's not she doesn't become the third wife of the um, person that she actually wants to be married to. She ends up, um, yeah, married to this white slave trader, and then um, yeah, and I mean, lots of it, isn't it? Lots of it at the beginning's discussions about who's going to be sold to who who's going to be married to who for what reason. Um, Abina, as you just said, she becomes the like crazy lady, which mm -hmm. is how many times have we heard that like mm -hmm. women are witches, we're all mad. Absolutely. Um, I really, I liked, I'm like, I, she, she turns up for like quite a while. She, she hangs on for a very long yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's in like multiple stories. Three generations on, she's still going. Yeah, she's great. And, and things change a little bit for her, which is really mm. nice. But I'm glad we got to go back and and see her. So, yeah, that and, and class particularly. Well, who's trading off who is there? And also um, 
yeah especially on the i mean especially on the american side which you know some people like to say that you know class is a british thing and other countries don't have class system and i'm just like mm, don't they <laughs> don't they <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll yeah, I mean that's really apparent in H's chapter, where you know the the, the vast majority of the people that he is uh, on the kind of chain gang with are black, mm. but every so often you do get um, a white man um, sent down with them, and that implied superiority, despite the fact that they are all there for having committed crimes, although in the case of H and certainly other of the, the black men, very, very minor crimes and the, the, the punishment is disproportionate to the to the crime. So in a bit after he's, he's actually no longer, he's now free um, and is now working in the mines as, as a free man. And this is at um, the first union member, the first union um, meeting. Um, and he says, who's going to pay attention to our strike, H asked. He was becoming more vocal at the meetings. Well, we tell them that we won't work until they raise our pay or make it safer. they got to listen, the white man said. H snorted. When a white man ever listened to a black man? Well, I'm here now, ain't I? I'm listening, the white man said. You're a con. You're a con too. H looked around the room. There are about 50 men there, over half of them black. What you done wrong, H asked, returning his gaze to the white man. At first, the white the man wouldn't speak. He kept his head lowered and cleared his throat so many times. H wondered if there was anything left in his mouth at all. Finally, the words came out. I killed a man. Killed a man, huh? You know what they got my friend Josie over there for? He, cro- he didn't cross the street when a white woman walked by. For that, they gave him nine years. For killing a man, they gave you the same. We ain't cons like you. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, class does exist. It's just, it's white men have been told to believe that no matter what class you are, you are better than any black man. And that's that sort of added layer of tension that's 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 there and is what, you know, he has to fight against for the, you know, to get the union movement up and going. Yeah, so let's talk about white people and specifically the British. Oh, because God. We're all over I- this. <laughs> Oh God! I mean, for this and Disoriental, I feel like both of these books have taught me more about the sheer fuckery of the Brits um, than anything I learned at school. Mm. I mean, as far as I mean, obviously, I've I've done more reading since. Um, I read uh, Black and British by David Olastoga, which is amazing. Um, and uh, also, I don't know, you did do quite recently Red Empire Land and, uh, you know, have read more as, as, as time has gone on. Um, but when I was at school, we were taught about slavery, but we were taught it was a thing that happened in America. Like we were not taught at any point that the Brits were involved. We were the ones that came along and abolished it. We're the good guys, everyone. Um, so or we're not. <laughs> I'm slightly older than you, as we mentioned at the beginning, and I was not taught about about slavery. When I started teaching, the kids were being taught about slavery, but I do not recall we did Roman Empire. Guess what we did for three (laughs) years, Kirsty? Was it the Second World War? First and Second World War. Is there any wonder I've got a fucking problem with it? Hitler's rise to power. At one point, I hate it off by heart. Yeah, I just hate Hitler's rise to power. Mm, it was the first question in my GCSE history exam. Uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, I know this one. Um, yeah. yeah, what else do we learn about Egyptians? 
Oh, no, no, I didn't do Egyptians. Mm, did Egyptians at primary school. Um, yeah. I did a lot of dinosaurs. Did you? Did. It was More good. <laughs> um, More important did... learning about Britain's <laughs> empire. <laughs> right? I mean, that's the thing. We did, uh, obviously, because I'm, I'm Scottish, we did uh, Bannockburn. That's it, 24th of June, 1314. Um, Robert the Bruce, all that sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, no. I mean, we were taught a, a little bit about slavery in that, by which I mean it wasn't a topic. It was maybe one or two lessons um, about, you know, black people being sold and put on these ships and taken to America and made to work. Um, at no point were we <laughs> told that the Brits were the ones selling and buying and putting them on the ships. Um, it was very much an American problem. And actually with Disoriental, which we'll get on to talk about in more detail, which is um, based around Iran, um, the Iranian revolution and so on. Again, I, my, my knowledge was shame, shamefully poor. Um, and actually I knew there was an issue with America and Iran mm -hmm. and the you know the the hostage situation and all this sort of stuff but it wasn't and I genuinely really wasn't until I read Empire Land and then read this where you go oh it wasn't just Americans mm -hmm. <laughs> we were pretty involved we've got this incredible habit of just sort of fading ourselves out of the picture mm -hmm. um all these terrible things happened which had nothing to do with us because Kirsty, we won the war. We won the war. <laughs> All on our own. We're just great. We didn't do anything. Say, we've got such pluck. <laughs> oh god. So yeah, I mean, staggering in my, I mean, just staggering in my ignorance, to be honest. And, um, I mean, these two books are an education in themselves. Mm. I think the the other thing with this as well, in terms of. The British was that I knew a bit about missionaries so so my parents sent me to Sunday school when I was a kid mm. so, so I know a bit about missionaries from that perspective and I think this was the first time I'd really thought about what missionaries were doing I mean yeah. like I've thought like a bit about you know that they were over there obviously trying to convert people that were just a load of bollocks but mm. <laughs> um, apologies anybody who's listening is religious uh, <laughs> Sendy complaints to me via Twitter. Um, but <laughs> that I did, because there's there's a, a bit when um, there's this amazing speech that Willie does. Willie is Etch's daughter, and it's her son who ends up um, addicted to heroin. So she does this incredible speech. She's talking to her son, um, who at this point yeah he's he's deep in addiction and she says she took a sip of her drink and stared off into space white men get a choice they get to choose their job choose their house they get to make black babies and disappear into thin air like they wasn't never there to begin with like these black women they slept with or raped done laid on top of themselves and got pregnant white men get to choose for black men too used to sell them now they just send them to prison like they did my daddy so that they can't be with their kids just about breaks my heart to see you, my son, my daddy's grandson, over here with these babies walking up and down Harlem who barely even know your name, let alone your face. All I can think is this ain't the way it's supposed to be. 
There are things you ain't learned from me, things you picked up from your father, even though you ain't know him, things he picked up from white men. It makes me sad to see my son a junkie after all the marching I done, but makes me sad to see you thinking you can leave you like your daddy did. You keep doing what you're doing and the white man don't got to do it no more. He ain't got to sell you or put you in a coal mine to earn you. He'll earn you just as is and he'll say you the one who did it. He'll say it's your fault. And I think it was the first time I'd ever thought about the use of religion as a prison, as a way to like trap people, as a way to say that they're doing it wrong. There's a, mm. there's a bit where they talk about, you know, they, they're not allowed to worship their own gods because mm. <laughs> as if there's a difference between which imaginary being you're, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. celebrating, worshipping, you know, sacrificing things to whatever. Yeah. So I felt like I learned a lot about that too. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think religion is really striking in this book. I mean, there's the, and again, I again, certainly not from school, but but since I'd started to, and I grew up in a religious household, um, and I, when I was doing my master's uh, I, in Victorian studies, um, I did a, one of the things, one of the courses I did was Victorians in religion. And of course, a big part of that was, you know, going to Africa and civilizing the natives with, you know, religion, you know, all that awful stuff. Um, but you see it from, you know, you see it from the other perspective in this novel where one of the characters is essentially, you know, kept prisoner by this missionary, um, you know, British missionary um, in Ghana, the Gold Coast, who are you know trying to set up this church and as you say you know they're not allowed to practice their own religion not allowed to worship their own gods they have to worship the you know infinitely better christian white god um and that is used as a tool of violence i mean physically you know literally and metaphorically it is it is an oppressive force and i think it's interesting that when you've got the american um strand of the story you know in a sense religion is used as a comfort you know with singing in church and church this place of community but of course you know these are people who have been forcibly removed from um or their their, their four you know forebears have been forcibly removed from um the gold coast and you know that's not the religion they would be practicing if they were still there so it, it it's both a solace and this imprisoning force at the same time it's a really clever sort of dichotomy I think yeah I think so it made me think of um Marx because that's the point that's the bit where they're starting to organize as well but how much because he was obviously quite critical of religion and they've got their community through the union that they've got together. But also, mm. like, back to Willis' thing about how, you know, there's that sort of dividing them by, you know, feeds, feeding drugs into the community and then, you know, the men abandoning children and, and all the things that, men, that Willie mentioned in that speech. So, yeah, I find it a kind of... I think there's so much you can say about the complexity of it and where it sits between stopping people from doing things, controlling people, acting as solace, as you said. Mm. There's an interesting sort of intersection of things going on, I think. 
Yeah, definitely. And it, it's sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. I mean, religion is this used as this this stick to beat people with literally and metaphorically. At the same time, it's, you know, as, as it's this kind of tool of violence, it becomes, well, this is your path to salvation. Mm. You know, it's that. And, and that's that's the kind of tension inherent, I think, in a lot of Western religion. Um, that it is both you know it's it's meant to be this this beautiful savior saving thing um unless you do it wrong in which case you go to hell uh, which you know it's always been my issue my personal issue with with religion having having grown up in in the church um it just it doesn't make a huge amount of sense to me as a concept i i struggle to see it beyond anything as a tool to keep women in their place to be honest. Oh, that too. Or, yeah. or anybody who's who's not a white man. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, the other thing that I did want to mention with this, which which does fit into religion in, in some sense, but lots of it is about storytelling. And actually, as as your guy as a storyteller is a, is a stunning storyteller. Mm. It's it's so well done. But also I I loved how it kept coming back to because obviously there's lots you know it's inherent in cultures that we tell stories and that's what mm-hmm. happens um early on but that threads through and I love how it threads through to Yar who um I, I hope that's how you pronounce it and say it's Y-A-W who is um he's right near the end so he's the the crazy woman's um kid he's scarred from the incident that will not go into too much depth about that she um has caused and it's his his daughter at the end who um is really interested in literature and she goes off to study literature and that sort of healing side but he talks about he's a history teacher so he talks about stories and he gets the kids in the first lesson to tell him the story of his scar because he knows that like they all talk about it so he uses it as this kind of teaching tool and they've got all these theories and they ask him to tell like one of them does eventually ask him and he says well I don't know because I I was a baby and I only know what I've been told and so like she 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 blatantly makes that point I mean it's like it's part of the story talking about stories being passed it's a speech that he does when he talks about stories being passed on and who's passing them on and we know this don't with a certain history told from certain perspectives and then like we were just saying about not knowing lots of it um, but yeah, that runs through the way that people tell stories and pass them on, and and so it's threaded through in the words as well as the actions of the characters. And yeah, I just thought it was really well done. Yeah, and that feels like a really good point to start talking about disoriental because actually, this is also a kind of multi generational story, but all told by one person. But the way she's telling it is very oral. You know, it's very conversational. She, it is not the kind of linear narrative that we see in Homegoing. It is, you know, we're in the present. We're three generations back. We're one generation back. We're two generations back. We're back in the present. Now we're back to three generations, and it's it's that very kind of circular, kind of spiral-like structure that feels incredibly natural as a storyteller because you know you do do that when you're telling stories I mean I did that before we started the recording I was recounting to Naomi my week from hell (laughs) I had the most ridiculous week um between work and some other stuff that was going on at home it was it was honestly I felt like I was in a farce um 
and I was trying to explain all this to Naomi and I was saying something you know kind of going oh well this happened and then oh actually I need to give you some background on that so this is what this happened this led up to this but then you know I'm getting ahead of myself and that is naturally how people end up telling stories because you know you end up having to fill in background detail that you've not mentioned or suddenly something else becomes relevant or you skip forward or you know and that's the, the structure of of this novel and it's incredibly effective because it feels so natural and so conversational rather than this happened and then this happened and then which is which is not to say that's how homegoing reads that it isn't at all it's, it's much better than that but it's much more linear in its time frame whereas this is just like you're going from a harem three generations back to present day Paris where um the the narrator is now living and what have you yeah, I think there were two things about it for me in, in terms of that. The first the first thing that struck me is the voice. The voice is like there engaging from the very first page. And mm. and there's also within that this there's an event that she holds off sort of mentioning it. So she's um, and the other thing is, even though it's got that sort of, as you mentioned, it moves back and forth, um, it's intertwined. It is framed by the fact that she's sitting in a fertility clinic and that runs the whole... So it it's basically takes place during the time that she is in the clinic and she only leaves the clinic at the end. So she's waiting for an appointment. She has the appointment. She leaves um, to go and meet someone but goes to see a mum on the way and that's sort of the end of it. That, that's not a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so she weaves these stories in between her sitting there. So there is a framework in place. The other thing was in terms of the storytelling, I loved how she did she did it. And this is like from the, the first bit where she sort of goes back and she says, for you to understand what I'm telling you, I have to rewind and start again from the beginning. I have to make you hear like I can hear it myself right now as a nurse glances at me indifferently and moves away again. The voice of my uncle Sadiq Sadar, nicknamed uncle number two. It's a voice in a minor key, smooth as a clarinet, telling what we used to refer to among ourselves as uncle number two's famous story so she's it's, she's a ventriloquist really because all mm. these different and some of them she can't possibly have met but she brings in their stories that she's been told by other members of the family um yeah and she does it beautifully like you said yeah there's a bit like you know where she says right well, you know, I can never quite remember what happens at this bit in the story but it's sort of roughly like this mm. which just feels so natural um and and goes back to that sort of history is what is told to you mm. essentially so you know that sort of slight misremembering can then make it into sort of hard family truth and gets you know passed down the generations and next thing you know it's the kind of Chinese whispers effect isn't it mm. yes and I don't know I don't know if we want to get into this what are, well you had said that in the we discussed this before because I was like I don't know how far this is going to be spoilers but somewhere, I think you said in the blurb, it mentions, oh yeah, it does. So um, at the heart of this prize winning international best bestseller is the unforgivable Kimia Sadia, queer punk rock aficionado and storyteller extraordinaire, a woman caught between the vibrant intricacies of her origins and the modern life she's made. It also won a Lambda Award. Um, if we're thinking about storytelling, there is a story that's been told about her gender as well when she was born. So I don't know how much she wants to get into this, but there's quite a fascinating tale about. Yeah, I think I don't. It's not a spoiler to say that um, she's she's gay. She's well, she's queer. She's um, 
it's in the blurb, it's right there in the blurb. Mm. But one of the family stories is about the fact that um, she's the youngest child of three. By the time um, her mother, Sarah, is pregnant with her, her father, Darius, is desperate to have a boy, um, is convinced that he's having a boy, has gone out and bought all these blue clothes, um, you know, everyone, and, and but not just that, but every kind of woman in the family, all the kind of old wives' tales, all the kind of traditional tales of how you tell whether you're pregnant with a girl or a boy, all, all the evidence, quote unquote, points towards um, Sarah being pregnant with a boy. And there's Sarah's mother who uh, reads Coffee Grounds, who <laughs> is convinced she'd seen something penoidal. Uh, in the in the coffee ground she's like I know the difference between a slit and a line um she's not something I ever want to think about again um and of course Kimio is is born a girl and so suddenly grandma Emma is sort of tying herself up in knots and trying to explain away her error because she never gets these things wrong well you know it must have been that I read the coffee grounds too early and you know the the, the genetic um sort of the genetic development hadn't got to the point of determining whether it's a boy or a girl and actually what must have happened is it was going to be a boy and you know genetics changed at the last minute and so as Camille is growing up she's kind of constantly looking for signs that she was right and of course Camille well not of course actually that's something I'll come on to Camille is a kind of tomboy she she prefers hanging out with her dad she doesn't she's not girly at all she doesn't want to play dolls you know she finds all of that boring she wants to be climbing trees and playing football and and hanging out with her dad and helping wash the car she says you know um I know what you're thinking a girl whose father wanted a son acts like a boy and ends up as a lesbian what a cliche it's true but it's only true when you have access to books and movie theatres where they show Sylvia Scarlet or the bitter tears of Petra von Kant when you've absorbed May 68 and the sexual revolution and the feminist movement and Simone de Beauvoir when you've listened to the runaways and Bowie and Patti Smith smoking and drinking until dawn in dark places that thump with dance music until you can't tell one mouth from another anymore one hand from another a man from a woman and again, if it were really so common, certain realities would have become commonplace. At the park, mothers would watch their short-haired daughters play with the remote control cars they got for Christmas and say, oh, well, you never know, she might grow up to be a lesbian. And their friends would laugh or be touched because children come from us, but they aren't obligated to resemble us, right? But seen from Tehran, that kind of cliche simply doesn't exist in any form. But the term tomboy doesn't exist, nor does any other term or word that recognises that difference. You're a boy or a girl, and that's that. Down through generations, codes have been put in place, certain codes for raising boys and others for raising girls. It's not only about clothes and toys or boys don't cry and girls hate, help mummy. It's about the future, about becoming a husband and father and earning money and making sure people know it, or becoming a wife and mother, raising polite, accomplished children and excelling in the art of housekeeping. No one knows how to raise the in-betweens or deal with the not-quites. It shocks Westerners that sex changes are legal in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Oh, there are transsexuals in Iran, they exclaim, in the same disconcerted tone as if they just learned that a nude beach was being established in the Vatican. Because they don't get that in our culture, the important thing is to be something, to fall into one category or another and follow its rules. Transsexuality exists because there is something worse than being transsexual, and that's being homosexual. 
that's not shameful. Shameful is losing your virginity before marriage or having an abortion or staying an old maid and living with your parents until they die. Shameful is being a drug addict and having a, or, or having an affair or raising children who then turn their backs on you. No, being gay isn't shameful. It's impossible and non-reality. That's sorry, quite a long section, but I thought worth reading. Um, yeah, so our kind of Western ideas of, you know, while I, you know, I felt like I, you know, as soon as she starts talking about kind of being a tomboy and wanting to cut her hair short, you're like, oh, hello. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, that's absolutely a Western, Westernized idea of um, these like codes of queerness kind of thing, which, you know, don't actually have to be the case at all. Um, I just, I thought it was an interesting to note and then sort of get called out on it in the text. <laughs> and actually, she does that quite a lot and she does it really cleverly. There are so many points along the way where you well, I, I as a reader absolutely felt I was being called out um, and and fair enough. You know, she she puts right from the beginning with the kind of asides and footnotes and, oh, as I'm sure you remember from <laughs> Iranian history, um, you know, these kind of these these points where she is very clearly making the reader uh, aware of their position of privilege. I mean, but obviously this was originally written in French. Um, the author lives in France and has done for a long time. Um, you know, indicating a French reader, and she does talk about um, you know French culture being held up as this sort of beacon when she was in Iran. In, in Iran, mm. um, but as a as a Brit, as a white reader, as a Westernized reader, um, yeah, I got called out repeatedly. Yes, I I felt the same, but not in a way. <clears throat> no, not uh -huh. not in a bad way. Yeah, no, I, I I was like, yeah, you're right. I should know this, and why do yeah. I? And and I mean, I'd um, I said I so I took again. It was another book that I took to my boyfriend's when I was reading, and he has travelled some of the countries in that region, not Iran specifically, but some of the others. And I said to him, I've learned so much that I didn't know about this, and he's like, yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah. you didn't know and I'm like all right thanks not you as well <laughs> don't need to be called out by two people it's enough to be called out by the narrator um no one of the things I think she did with that as well was talk about what it's like to change cultures so we talk about the the French thing and she talks about language so she says this scar that runs across my vocabulary is my only concession to vanity the only hint of resistance in my efforts to integrate let's call them I use that expression for the sake of convenience because it means something to you even though brought up on a steady diet of French culture since childhood I don't really care what it conveys besides since we're on the subject I think it lacks both sincerity and openness because to really integrate into a culture, I can tell you that you have to disintegrate first, at least partially from your own. You have to separate, detach, disassociate. No one who demands that immigrants make an effort at integration would dare look them in the face and ask them to start by making the necessary effort at disintegration. They're asking people to stand atop the mountain without climbing up it first. And, you know, even though she's talking about France, it could equally apply. Here where, you know, how many times, oh, especially, I think, when was it? Early noughties? I remember there being a whole, I mean, um, Camilla Shamsi writes about this in Home Fire with the, um, what is he, the... Um, Home Secretary. Home Secretary, yeah. 
who goes to that school in Bradford and tells them that this sh- that they should all be um, behaving br- like they're Brits. And you're like, what, are you mm. what does that mean? <laughs> um, yeah, so I thought that was one of the points. And then she goes a few pages on to talk about um, accent and grammar. And she says, then once the facts of the accent have been established, the mechanism went into motion. My conjugation mistakes and grammatical errors were pointed out. And of course, I suddenly couldn't stop making them. The other person would start to speak more slowly, punctuating references to a book or a politician or an advertisement with, you may not be aware, but believe me, no one misses the foreigners. No one can resist the cheap pleasure of scratching that itch of difference. That language is definitely the easiest way to catch them out and corner them until the facade of normality they've spent a long, painful time acquiring cracks and hangs and shreds from their embarrassed body. In an attempt to escape from that kind of everyday sadism, I retreated very early into silence, letting music cascade through my brain and rinse it clean. With hindsight, I've realised that the silence transformed my engagement, uh, my strangeness into mystery and that mystery into attraction, which isn't such a bad thing. But while my artificial powers of seduction grew, my voice lodged in my throat as if in a tomb. And actually that bit made me think about social media and how much time people spend correcting other people's grammar when they know exactly what they mean. <laughs> oh, God. That drives me mad that he's meant to put people in their place. And you just think, if you spend your days feeling superior because you know a system that was made up by some white men in, a, in the Oxford Triangle and you like to um, employ it, as you say, correctly, then, you know, you need to get out more. <laughs> Yeah, that was me I mean, calling I'm with people you. Outcast. <laughs> <laughs> I felt emboldened. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I think, um, I mean, there's a special place in health. People spend their life correcting people on social media. I tell you what gets my back up is the phrase, please consider dot, dot, dot. Just, uh, just really bothers me even if what they're asking the person to consider is entirely legitimate mm. it's just that phrase patronizing, isn't it? it is patronizing yes it is um it's very as if, british you so please that <laughs> <laughs> please consider slap uh, <laughs> yeah even if i actually agree with what they're asking the person to consider doing mm. it just it just really gets my back up that's just an aside for you. Um, yeah, I think the um, the other interesting thing about this book is the fact that the you know she's kind of talking about all the different generations while literally in a clinic trying to create the next generation. As we've already referenced, she's she's queer and is undergoing artificial insemination and is having to um, go through all sorts of bureaucratic um, loops and um, emissions of emissions of fact, shall we say, <laughs> to, to make that happen. Um, and I just, I, I liked, I was, I was really interested in the concept of her talking about all the kind of the sort of things that have been handed down generation after generation and stories that have been handed down generation after generation while actively trying to create the next generation um, in, a, in the most deliberate way. I mean, obviously people, you know, heterosexual couples can 
very purposely get pregnant but there is something about that scientific you know medical intervention to bring the next generation along to be talking about you know the traumas of the previous generations that I just thought was an interesting interesting contrast it's just made me think about as you said that about her preparing to like you know um birth well not because she's not on to birth yet but preparing to like gestate the next uh yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about Matruska dolls Matruska dolls so you say yeah. what you're saying about them being inside each other which is an image that Heidi James uses in the sound mirror like quite early on she's yeah. got a chorus of them all speaking and this is sort of that done in a kind of broader sense that they're all there in both books that they're all there and it's all sort of linked together I think one of the things as well, linking back to what I, what she said in those points about being French and talking about silence, that's something that comes up as well in the sort of um, revolutionary movements about that silencing stops people revolting and what it, you know, how it's keeping, like we were talking about with Homegoing, how it's keeping those communities in their place, as in where the white people thinks their place is. Um, and for Darius, when they're in Iran, it's it's his objection to the leaders and where he sort of finds ways, I don't know, so I suppose to, to mm, oppose that, I guess is the word that mm. I'm, I'm thinking. I mean, he's a, re- he's a revolutionary leader, isn't he? And he, yeah, uh, is very active in terms of trying to um, call out leaders of the country and mm. yeah yeah well, he writes this letter doesn't he that's that's then sort of circulated amongst students and people can be arrested for having it in their possession and it's a letter to the shah basically mm. pointing out all his um <laughs> failings yeah i mean quite a lot of this, so when we get into sort of darius's story which it keeps coming back to because there's an event which we don't find out until near the end which which is to do with darius um it's all those bits, isn't it? When he's, he disappears, all these people search. So there's a lot of that goes on about him being tracked and looked for. And mm. I suppose questions about freedom, again, which comes up in both books, like what does freedom look like for certain people? Is he, is he free when they move to France? Mm. Is she free? Like she's gone from one sort of place where she can't be herself because she's queer, but then she comes to France and she can't be herself because she's now an immigrant and she's expected expected to integrate. And there's the issues around fertility that she can't have fertility treatment as as a gay woman, so. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the last, the sort of last point I want to make is actually the different, the, the, the difference between these books is this thing about reading Homegoing or looking back at Homegoing after having just read Disoriental where you've got this one narrator who is condensing all of this sort of generations of, of family history and so the narrator in that book is the one that sort of condenses it into this one sort of one big arc as it were although spiral perhaps insert your own shape here um with homegoing because so many generate you know the generational spread is so much bigger it's hundreds of years um it becomes almost quite easy 
to forget that the characters themselves don't know perhaps two or three generations back. And so it's it's that sort of macro view of history that we see, for instance, there's a necklace with a particular stone that gets passed down through the generations. And we know that's, that, that necklace is history. We know the first owner, um, but the, the, the person in the last generation who has it doesn't. Um, and I, I just there's something about having that that sort of bird's eye view of you're seeing it all very close together, you know, this large spread of time um, and seeing those signs like the broom or whatever cropping up. And we can see the pattern as the reader because we've just read the narrative, but that but they can't. And I, I just think that's a really it, it quite poignant thing of how these patterns, even if it's as simple as a broom or a necklace end up repeating you know without all the prior knowledge being there very clever and a clever way to do that actually yeah because I think one of the things that uh disoriental made me think about was how much was nurture and how much was nurture and funnily enough I was reading an article last week that said that question's kind of redundant because you, the two entwined for you to be able to unpick those two yeah but I thought, yeah, in terms of disoriental, I was thinking about, again, not that it's echoed deliberately because it's not because you've got this one person trying to tell the family history. But again, as a reader, you can mm. see sort of traits in people and how they're doing things because the previous generation did something. And yeah, I think it's it's a really interesting thing to 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 do and to read about because I don't like I don't know about you, but I don't know about enough about my family history to go back and work out what's coming from where so it's kind of fascinating no. to watch it go. and you could never know really you can never like even if you go if you're into like genealogy and do all your ancestry and stuff like that you still don't know what happened to a piece of jewelry or mm. a broom or if there's some sort of you know there's there's so much that can't be or hasn't been recorded um through history you know, there's so much of that stuff that's completely unknowable. <laughs> On that note, uh, what is knowable, what a segue, <laughs> is that we'll be back next week talking about um, two more books. Um, we will be reading Without Prejudice by Nicola Williams, which is part of the uh, Black Britain Writes Back series that was created by Bernadine Evaristo and um, Your House Will Pay by Steph Char. So a bit of bit of crime and justice next week. Mm. Question mark, crime and justice? Question mark. <laughs> Find out next week. Find out next week. Tune in then. In the meantime, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter where we chat books, particularly at the end of the month where we show what we've been reading besides what we've talked about on the podcast or as well as what we've talked about on the podcast. Um, I am at Naomi Frisbee and Kirsty is at The Other Kirsty. Um, we will see you next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you.